BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. I'm Matthew Sweet, and I'm here with an emotional message. It's about the Arts and Ideas podcast and the state you'll get into if you download the discussions and short talks from this year's Free Thinking Festival. We have all the ideas, and now we have all the feels. How angry should our politics be? Really angry or not quite so angry? Do our pets love us, or are they just playing us for processed meat? Why do we love weeping at the movies? Should doctors and nurses cry? The BBC Arts and Ideas podcast. You push our buttons and we'll push yours. George Gershwin called Porgy and Bess a folk opera. And what an extraordinary history it's had. It opened on Broadway in 1935. The first European production, eight years later, was closed by the Nazis. The revival in the early 50s featured Leontine Price, Cab Calloway and Maya Angelou and appeared in Moscow behind the Iron Curtain. The Hollywood film of Porgy and Bess won an Oscar for Andre Previn. There have been jazz versions. It's attracted racial controversy right from the start and it had to wait until 1976 for the first major opera house production and first complete recording. Since when... There have been quite a few. I'm Andrew McGregor, presenter of BBC Radio 3's Record Review. Welcome to this podcast edition of Building a Library, for which I was joined in the studio by Edward Seckerson, who's a huge fan of Porgy and Bess. But before we touch on the performance history of Gershwin's opera, I asked Ed to remind us what a groundbreaking piece it is. Well, I mean, really, nobody saw it coming. I think that's the point. Um, I mean, even giving, given the body of work that preceded it, um, uh, nobody foresaw or anticipated the scale, the ambition, sophistication, daring. It was unprecedented. Um, Irving Berlin once famously said, the, the rest of us were songwriters. George was a composer. And he got that right, I think. Um, but he still brought the gifts of a a great songwriter to bear in this opera. Absolutely. That's that's part of the thrill of the piece. But he was heading somewhere else Mm. and it was a huge leap for him. Um, uh, But there's evidence everywhere of this composerly mind of his. And right at the start of the piece, after this big flourish from the orchestra, the jazzer in him throws down a vamp, because that's what it is. It's a vamp. And it goes right across the orchestra, writ large, and it's repeated again and again, until suddenly the sound drops out dramatically and you're left with this solitary barroom piano. And then suddenly you think, oh, so that's where the vamp came from.
that vamp, the introduction to Porgy and Bess and Gershwin ending up on sort of barroom piano. Um, Ed Sexton, before we even begin sifting through the recordings, uh, we're under a minute into the opera. There's already so much to learn about George Gershwin mm. right there, mm. isn't there? Yeah, well, you can imagine him sat at the piano, actually, spiriting up that idea in the wee small hours or at someone's dinner party. Um, in fact, what's interesting about that barroom piano that then turns into a kind of blues, Jasbo Brown blues, uh, was it was so personal to him. And when he set down... Um, some excerpts from his first draft of Paul Guillembert. He went into a studio just to get the feel of it and he played it himself. Um, it was so close to him. It's the one moment I never want to hear cut from the score, but unfortunately it's one of the, it was one of the first things to go. I was going to say, I'm, I'm sure we'll be getting to this as we go, but that was the first complete recording. That's Laurie Marzell on Decca, and mm. the same year as the first full opera house production in Houston, 1976. And Paul Guillembert was already over 40 years old before those things happened. How much does completeness matter? Because it has such a strange history. It matters a lot, but I think Gershwin always overwrote, and I think one of the, the few criticisms you could level at Porgy and Bess is that it's too long. Um, so in comparing the so-called complete recordings, because they vary a lot, we'll see how in matters of completeness it ain't necessarily so. Uh, in <laughs> fact, it's mighty complicated. So I'm only going to consider today the complete or near-complete recordings, and certainly not the book-song adaptation, which was sanctioned goodness knows why, by the Gershwin estate for London's West End and for Broadway. Much as I love Audra MacDonald and Norm Lewis on that cast album, um, I think it's a total betrayal of what Gershwin was trying to achieve. OK, well, that's he... taken some recordings off the, off the table that immediately hasn't. And after, after that introduction, we're immediately reminded of Gershwin's gifts as a hit songwriter. Yes. I mean, it, it's one of the things about it is that I don't think he ever envisaged that gravitation from speech to song um, in fact the only characters in the piece that don't sing are the white folk um, which is a pointed effect he made um, yes you've mentioned the hit song well he throws down his biggest hit right at the top of the show um, and it's, it's claimed that this, pe- this song Summertime has more than 25,000 cover versions. I'm, oh, I'm really? not sure that... Nobody's actually done a count. Um, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a languid lullaby sung by Clara to her baby, a pentatonic blues inflection to it. Um, some people say it's a Ukrainian Yiddish folk song. Um, but here's an interesting thought. Sondheim has pointed out that the importance of the word and in that first line of the song, summertime and the living is easy. The obvious lyric would be summertime when the living is easy. Um, But the word and establishes this this colloquial, personal, first-hand feel. This is a community where simple folk have their own special way of expressing lofty ambitions. Here's Harolyn Blackwell in the famous Simon Rattle recording based on Trevor Nunn's legendary Glyndebourne staging.
That was Harlan Blackwell with uh, Simon Rattle and the London Philharmonic on Warner Classics. Very slow, pure, a tiny bit arch to my mind. Um, Gershwin was aspiring to grand opera, but I always think of this number as a blues projected operatically, not an opera aria hinting at the blues. Now, how's this for the polar opposite? It comes from a somewhat rough and ready live recording on the Guild label, a remarkable souvenir of a tour set up in 1952 by the US State Department to introduce the world to Porgy and Bess, and no less significantly to a young singer, by the name of Leontine Price. More from him, her anon. Um, but first, here's Helen Colbert singing the blues. <laughs> Colbert as Clara. That's the live recording from Berlin in 1952, conducted by Alexander Smollins. Uh, Fascinating cast. And that was a a disc of the week when it was first released back in 2008 Mm -hmm. here on Record Review. And uh, we've heard Rattle presenting it as grand opera. We've heard that sort of, well, historical approach closer to the Broadway origins of Porgy and Besk. Is there a middle way? Um, Well, you heard the little embellishment at the close there. Uh, It's the kind of gospel singer just itching to deviate (laughs) from the written text. Um, um, but between Rattle's grander approach and, and that, there's this. Um, it's a highly distinctive sound of Barbara Hendricks for Lauren Marzell, and it's the kind of operatic blues that I have in my mind's ear. swoon 
Barbara Hendricks for Lauren Marzell on Decca and the Cleveland Orchestra. I've always loved that Hendricks dusky sound, those distinctive chest tones there. So I reckon the key to getting Porgy and Bess right, Andrew, is, is finding that ideal balance between its folksiness mm. and its high sophistication. Um, recordings like those from Rattle and Lauren Marzell veer more towards grand opera than Broadway, and, and that we must assume is what the composer had in mind. Well, there was those ambitions, weren't there? Although he did call it a folk opera. Well, well he, he often referenced Wagner, though, you know, yes. in particular Meister Singer, um, probably because of its sense of community. Um, and his use of the light motif was something he certainly borrowed from Wagner and uses quite extensively in this piece. OK, so that's taken us to Catfish Row, which is Gershwin's fictitious black tenement on the waterfront in Charleston in Arizona. Mm. And straight after summertime, we're in a game of craps with the men, rolling dice. Uh, when do we meet Porgy? Well, he has his own aspirational leitmotif, um, first heard on his entrance. And um, uh, if we go back to the very first Porgy, Lawrence Winters, among the very first things he sings is, is this fleeting and very moving little ariosa where in less than a minute and a half, Gershwin establishes his isolation, his loneliness and his need for a soulmate. Porgy ain't soft on no They pass by singing They pass by crying Always looking They look in my door And they keep on moving When God may cripple he mean him to be lonely. Nighttime, daytime, he got to travel that lonesome Winters, the very moving Porgy on the premiere Lehman Engel recording remastered on Naxos Historical. Uh, significantly, Winters studded with, um, um, with Gershwin's first Porgy, Todd Duncan. With that music still in mind, uh, let's hear the key sequence that brings this first scene to a close. Um, it's a big moment which sets the course really for the entire piece. This is the moment where Bess seeks refuge from the police after her man, the stevedore Crown, um, has killed Serena's husband after an ill, ill-fated ill um, crap game that you mentioned, Andrew. Um, it's the first instance of Gershwin harnessing thematic material for what you might call a big emotional climactery. No one will open the door to Bess, uh, but Porgy does. And at that moment, we, he effectively lets Bess into his life. Um, the music from his little Ariosa that we just heard um, is taken up in the trumpets and fused with a premonition of what will be their first love duet for, together. And it's a portent, if you like, of what is to come. And boy, does Gershwin nail it. 
Cleveland Orchestra there under Lauren Marzell on Decker. An American orchestra, I think, makes all the difference. Uh, it just does. And I love that touch of Broadway vibrato in the trumpets. Now, Porgy and Bess has always attracted controversy. I mean, we're, we're familiar with it in, in our own time. There's always discussion about casting and appropriation. But right from the start, mm. in 1935. Yeah. Um, well, it's the idea that three well-heeled white men created this piece that made people feel uncomfortable. Um, Duke Ellington said, um, no Negro could possibly be fooled by Porgy and Bess. And, and there was a, a piece in a, an African-American newspaper in Baltimore that dubbed the revival of it the most insulting, the most libelous, the most degrading act that could possibly be per- perpetrated against coloured Americans in modern times. Well, we should remember that it had its origins back in 1922 when Gershwin and his librettist Buddy De Silva whipped up a 25-minute mini-opera, a Harlem tragedy called Blue Monday. And that was performed, hard to believe now, by white singers in blackface. So you can can see where the disquiet began. Um, Yeah. And even when I saw it at ENO recently, um, the the literal spelling out of the patois um, in the speech grew drew titters from the audience. Um, uh, You know, it it, it does. Um, Anyway, um, have a listen to this. Uh, This sounds alarmingly to me like a minstrel show parody. Um, and, And keep a sharp eye on the chorus as well. I 
Jonathan Lemali there singing I Got Plenty of Nothing. And that was uh, Nicolas Arnoncourt's recording of the Chamber Orchestra of Europe mm. and the Arnold Schoenberg <laughs> Choir. Yes, yeah. Um, I wonder whether Lemali realised, I thought he was just sounding distressingly woolly there. I wonder how, how much he realised what a caricature he was making of it. There's even a touch of Al Jolson in there. Um, yes, the Arnold Schoenberg Chorus. Um, how on earth did Arnon Kaur get approval, even for a concert performance from the Gershwin estate, to use an all-white chorus? I mean, he goes to great lengths in the booklet note to talk about, um, you know, how the Nazis banned what they brand- branded as cheap black music and the ethnic and swing elements in the piece. Um, but and then he performs and records the piece with a with a, a white chorus and a German chorus at that. I'm sorry, it's it's this whole set could hardly be less authentic if that was Arnoncourt's intention. It's an embarrassment, it's effortful and pedestrian, devoid of any sense of the stars that make up the piece. But before I discard it unceremoniously, um, lend a more critical ear to that chorus. I don't, I don't know about residents of Catfish Row scenting the promised land. Sounds to me more like a delegation from the Vienna Town Council contemplating their next boring meeting. Um, the Arnold Schoenberg chorus has really sounded whiter, I think is the way to put it. At this point in the score, Andrew, you, you just want to be taken to church.
that's how the spirit moves. The chorus and orchestra at the Houston Grand Opera in a Grammy award-winning recording based on production mounted in 1976. Conducted by John Domaine, who was at the helm of Houston Grand Opera for 18 years. And it's really terrific with a potency and theatricality and wholeness you can kind of reach out and touch. Most startling of all in this score, and that was a great example, is the way gospel music is elevated to art song. Most notably in the scene of Robin's Wake, where Serena spills her soul in the great aria, My Man's Gone Now. Now, you need to pull out a star singer for this number, and this next lady is, I'm afraid, just not her. That's Monique McDonald as Serena in John Malcheri's Nashville recording for Decca. And it just, sounds half asleep, doesn't just, it? Well, it's not comfortable somehow, is it? And um, yet, you know, this is Malcheri territory. Yeah, surely we we can't sort of cast this recording aside on the strength of one aria. Can well, we? you you you'd be surprised. Um, I mean, he does have a stellar reputation, a significant scholar of this repertoire. And for this recording, he apparently went back to all the archives in the 1935 premiere, including the conductor score. Um, none of it manifests itself in this rather pedestrian reading. Um, it doesn't it generate any intensity, really. Um, there's another dimension to this number. I mean, you get Lauren Marzell, who pulls out the big guns with a singer like Florence Quivar, a devouring diva, operatic presence and then some. But there is this other dimension. Gershwin was fusing the worlds of gospel and opera to amplify the anguish of this scene and this number. Wilma Shakespeare for Domaine's Houston Grand Opera, sets out, is, well, she's clearly bent on rending the heavens with her lament, and it's like she's singing out of her body. It's extraordinary.
searing kind of biblical intensity from Wilma Schneeksider as Serena in the Houston Grand Opera recording on RCA. It's interesting how time and again in this score it's hard to separate the gospel from the Hebraic, or perhaps I should say the cantorial. passage at the start of Act Two's hurricane scene where Gershwin superimposes six independent solo voices in, in, in extraordinary threnody for deliverance from the storm. That was the Lauren Marzell recording on Decca reminding us just how much of an innovator Gershwin was striving to be in this score. Now, that's an extraordinary piece of writing and a reminder of just what a set of tools Gershwin was bringing to bear with the opera. But we're missing something, aren't we? Because um, Porgy and Bess is, well, it's about Porgy and Bess. It's a love story to a huge extent, and we've not been telling that. Yeah, well, at the heart of the piece, the soul of it, really, are those two great love duets. Um, Before we dip into the first of them, here's another example of Gershwin at his most sophisticated and distilled in the way he underscores words. Um, This is the moment Bess regains consciousness from the the, the fever after her violent encounter with Crown on Kitawa Island. And if you've ever doubted Gershwin's debt of honour to Wagner, Rattle clearly hears it. Um, Is this his Parsifal moment? Very sick, 
and Cynthia Heyman on the Rattle recording. It's in passages like that that Rattle really excels. Um, there's a seriousness and beauty about his reading that's undeniable. Um, it is inclined to be overly earnest at times. That's my problem with it. And luxuriously slow, if that is to your taste. White and Cynthia Heyman with Simon Rattle and the London Philharmonic. Just gorgeous and typical of the whole performance, really. I'm very high-minded in a way that I think Gershwin would have admired, I'm sure. But for me, all a bit Shimonovsky-like and with too much, perhaps, of a European accent about it. I miss the smell of its Broadway It's, it's the Broadway thing, isn't it, that's, that's missing. So where do we, where do we find that? Well, we, listen to this as a contrast. Um, this is from the live Berlin performance I referred to earlier, featuring the shining presence of Leontine Price as Bess with William Warfield as Porgy. It isn't a contender except as a collector's item, but it does demonstrate what is missing from the rattle, an earthiness, an urgent conversational tone, which throws an entirely different light on the duet. And as for price, well... (laughs) 
Leontine Price. In, one, of, one of the great voices of our time in embryo, if you like. Yeah, early. And, and it's, it's wonderful. This is such a time capsule, this live recording from 1952. I know we've got to put it on one side. Yeah. Because it's, of well, well, it the, says, the, the cuts. If, I know. If no it says reason. complete on the cover, which makes it even more insulting. It, it plays really fast and loose with the text. Uh, interpolates an orchestral interlude into Bessie is my woman now at one point and substitutes sung music for spoken, which I guess opened the door for the book song version a few years back. It's really such a shame that no one ever recorded Price in the complete role. But if you're a fan of this piece, do try and hear this recording. It's on the Guild label. And uh, Cab Calloway. Yeah. Sport and life as Absolutely. well. We haven't heard from um, him yet. How does how does um, Gershwin bring the um, Catfish Rose bad boy? To well, life? one one of the great joys of the score lies with the diversity of the music and the way characters are defined by their music. And Sport and Life has his oily, slinky, addictive jazz, a music that Gershwin knew as well as anyone. And what we need for Sport and Life and his two showstoppers is a Broadway showman who can sing. You remember Sammy Davis in the, in the movie version. Um, what we don't need is a burlesque novelty act. Jonah, he lived in a well. Oh, Jonah, he lived in a well. For he made his home in that fish's abdomen. Oh, Jonah, he lived in a well. Little Moses was found in the stream. Little Moses was found in the stream. That child floated on water till old Pharaoh's daughter fished him, she said, from that stream. Oh, why do Definitely too much happy dust. Um, Robert Mack on the disappointing Marcheri recording, overcooking the parody to the point of absurdity, really. Um, Houston Grand Opera's Larry Marshall is the genuine article, slipping just fine into the humming theatricality of his other big number. There's a boat that's leaving soon on New York. And me can live that high life in New York. Come with me. Yeah, you can't go wrong, sister. I'll buy ya the swellest mansion up on Upper Fifth Avenue. And through Harlem we'll go strutting, we'll go strutting, and there'll be nothing too good for you. I'll dress ya in silks and satins, in the latest Paris styles, and all your blues you'll be forgetting, you'll be forgetting, there'll be no friend, just nothing but smiles. 
That's a perfect example of uh, you know it when you hear it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Larry you can Marshall. Sing, too, you <laughs> yes, see. Can't be and no caricature. Larry Marshall as Sport and Life. That's in John Domain's Houston Grand Opera recording of Porgy and Bess in the mid seventies. Um, does Bess fall for it? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Um, she picks up the happy dust, and you get that fabulous orchestral blaze that signals, you know, the the, the neon lit big city that she's gonna she's going to run off to. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it doesn't feel... I don't think any less live, this recording, for being a studio uh, recording. And presumably the cast from the Houston opera production um, had trod the boards with of this. Course, and it, and it, just, and it feels, yeah, they just, just done stage, it on stage. It? You know, I didn't know this recording when I set about doing this building a library. And it, it blew me for six. Um, what I love about it is the feeling that it has come hot and fresh from the stage and and as you say you'd never guess it was a studio recording has heat and passion and a wonderfully spontaneous homespun quality it's all of a piece really um i've no hesitation in making this my my library choice um it's porgy donny ray albert is no willard white and of course willard is on both the rattle and marzo well, that's the trouble with letting the rattle one go isn't it and that sort of grand yes. opera approach we also lose willard white and that's a special performance uh, it really is a special performance and then, you know there are many people who might prefer that approach um but personally i i, I need to feel that broadway connection with the piece um and um you know um, Clamadale, uh, she's a an unprecious, soulful Bess, and everyone else in the cast is smoking hot, really. But it's that immediacy and smell of the theatre that's so winning. And Rattle and Marzell sound very streamlined and studio-bound by comparison, I hate to say. And maybe, just maybe, the heart of it all lies with Gershwin's decision to give his premiere of Porky and Bess to the Theatre Guild and not to the Metropolitan Opera.
Oh Lord, I'm on my way. Donnie Ray Albert as Porgy setting off on his goat cart for New York City at the end of Gershwin's opera Porgy and Bess in the 1976 Houston Grand Opera recording conducted by John Domain. And for Edward Seckerson, that's the one for the library. So it's Ed's overall building a library recommendation. It's on the RCA Red Seal label, available at the moment as a download. You'll find details of the recording on the Record Review website alongside Ed's other favourites, that historic 1952 Berlin recording and Rattle in Glyndebourne. And you've been listening to a podcast edition of Building a Library from BBC Sounds. Well, next time, Building a Library compares recordings of Beethoven's Opus 1 piano trios with Helen Wallace discussing the options with me. You can listen live if you join me, Andrew McGregor, for Record Review, Saturday mornings from 9 on BBC Radio 3, on FM, online and on BBC Sounds, where you can discover more music, radio and podcasts like this one. This is a download from the BBC. For more information and for terms of use, go to bbc.co.uk slash radio 3.